invite you to be seated and open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. We're going to jump in in a minute at verse 18 and read several verses there in Romans chapter 1. But first let me give you a little context. Romans is a letter that Paul wrote to the believers, the church there in Rome. And it is the most theologically developed book in the New Testament. Paul wrote to a number of churches, he wrote to a number of individuals, many of those letters we have as a part of our New Testament, but this one is different in this way. He spends more time in Romans developing some of the important doctrines, some of the, the theological doctrines that were so important to the early church and are important to us today as well. And he begins in chapter 1 by building a case for our sinfulness. In other words, he, he begins the book of Romans diagnosing the, the spiritual problem that humanity has, which is sin, so that he can then move on to the cure. He can move on to the solution, which is salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And so the first three chapters of the book of Romans are essentially boiled down to this. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the argument of the first three chapters. We're going to look at just the beginning of that argument in chapter 1, and we're going to learn something very important about the glory of God. So look with me at Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. And I'll just warn you ahead of time, this is a, this is a heavy passage. This is this is a heavy one, but listen to what he says. It's important. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them over in their sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so, they, so that they do what, they ought, what ought, ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossip, slanders, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do them, 
do these very things, but they also approve of those who practice them. Father, as we open your word this morning, we realize, Lord, that it is a, uh, uh, a serious word to us this morning. And Father, we pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that we can receive what you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Because I said so. All right, it's Father's Day. How many of you fathers have ever used that line with your kids? Huh? Right? You, you tell them to do something or, or, or to not do something, and they say, why? And you say, because I said so. Now, the truth is that when your kids are little, that works most of the time, right? You, you can get by with that. But it, as they get older, oftentimes that doesn't cut it anymore, especially if your kids begin to challenge your authority, which kids will sometimes do. And so then you know what the next question is, right? You say, because I said so, and they say, well, well, why do you get to say so? Who are you to tell me how to live my life, right? And if you don't have good answers to those questions, and there are good answers to those questions, but if you don't have them, you're going to have a really hard time parenting. Now, I bring this up not because we're going to talk about parenting this morning, but because in our society... There are a lot of people asking the same questions of God. They may not put it in those exact terms, and they may not even think of it in this way consciously, but nonetheless, that's what's going on. People want to live life on their own terms. They want to call the shots in their life. And so they will choose things, they will choose to do things, they will live in a way that clearly violates God's moral standard of right and wrong. And by doing so, essentially they're saying to God, who are you to tell me how to live my life? And so what we see more and more in our society is people rejecting the idea of a universal moral standard, a standard that is true, objectively true for all people, in favor of more of a personal moral standard or a personal moral code. And so right and wrong has to do more with kind of your list of do's and don'ts and my list of do's and don'ts. And and what might be right for you may not be right for me and what might be wrong for you may not be wrong for me, but that's okay as long as we're, we're all respect each other's values and beliefs. And this is not just something that's out there in the world. This thinking has found its way into the church. We've become in the church increasingly squeamish about talking in terms of moral absolutes. But it's more than that. Study after study has shown that there is essentially very little difference between the personal lives of believers and the personal lives of those who make no claim to have faith in God. Studies have shown that when it comes down to it, people who say, I know God, I've trusted God, I follow God, don't really end up living very much different from people who make no such claim. Like the world, we are buying into this argument that says, I ought to be able to live life on my terms. Yes, I want to live in a relationship with God, but in a way that suits me. And so not surprisingly, in our culture, The individual has become the point of reference when it comes to morality instead of God. I want you to hear that because that's so important. This is the way our culture thinks. The point of reference when it comes to determining right and wrong is not God. It is 
the individual. And what lies behind all of this, whether it's conscious or not, is this question. Who is God to tell me how to live my life? Why shouldn't I be able to call the shots in my own life? Now, the the simplistic Christian answer, that one we might give is, because God said so, (laughs) right? Because I said so. And as Christians, we might just default to, well, because God said so. Well, that's true, but it doesn't really answer the question. Because what's the next question? Why does God get to say so? And we might say to that, because he's God. Ah, now we're getting somewhere. But still, that's not enough. We need to unpack that a little bit this morning. So here's the question I want us to ask and answer. Why should you and I obey God? Why should anybody obey God? Or to ask it another way, what compels us to say no to sin as God defines sin? Now, the short answer to that question comes from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And the first question there is this. What is the chief end of man? And the answer is the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. When we understand that life is about glorifying God, that everything is about the glory of God, then we have a compelling reason to obey God. This morning we're starting a three-part series called The Glory of God. And what I want us to see in this series is that the glory of God is at the very heart of our obedience. That's what we're going to see this morning. It's at the very heart of our salvation. We'll see that next week. And then on the third week, we're going to see it's at the very heart of our worship. And that's exactly what Paul shows us in Romans chapter 1. The glory of God should be at the heart of the believer's motivation for obedience. And so here's what Paul shows us. If we're going to obey God, then we need to understand some things. There are three things that should motivate us in our lives towards obedience. Something that goes beyond because God said so. That gives us a substantive reason. So here's what Paul says. Obey God, number one, because sin suppresses the truth of God's glory. Every one of the answers that Paul's going to give us here, every one of the motivations have to do with God's glory. Sin suppresses the truth of God's glory. When we talk about the glory of God, what are we talking about? What does that mean? We're talking about the manifestation of all that He is. The excellence and perfection of His divine nature. So we talk about the glory of God, we're talking about the greatness of God in terms of His perfection, in terms of His divinity. You know, when a a man looks at a woman and says, you look glorious, what is he talking about? He's commenting on the excellence of her appearance. When we talk about the glory of God, we're talking about the excellence, not of a a superficial appearance, but we're talking about the excellence of His very nature. And what Paul shows us in Romans chapter 1 is that this divine nature of God, this, this glory of God, the excellence of His divine nature is revealed to us in creation, if we have eyes to see. In fact, not only does he say it's revealed to us in creation, he says twice in verse 19, it's plain to us. He says in verse 20, it is clearly seen. Now, here's why that's important. The reality of a divine, glorious, eternal being is the foundation for our standard of right and wrong. Let me say that again. The fact that there is this this glorious, eternal, divine being that we call God, that is the very foundation of our standard of right and wrong. He is the reference point 
of right and wrong. And when we live according to, to the truth, that means we live rightly before God in light of who He really is. And we recognize that right and wrong are an expression of His glorious nature. Do you understand what I'm saying? See, God didn't, God didn't choose right and wrong by flipping a coin. It's not just because God said so. It's because it is who God is. He didn't choose right and wrong by flipping a coin. He didn't say, well, gee, I wonder if lying should be good or bad. Well, you know, oh, lying should be a sin. No, lying is wrong because God is truth. He didn't decide that we should uphold justice and pursue justice and treat one another with justice because he flipped a coin. He did so because God is just. Morality is fundamentally about who God is. Sin is fundamentally a violation of the nature of God. That's very different from the way we view sin, isn't it, so often? Even in the church. It's very different from this idea that sin is just breaking a rule on somebody's list of right and wrong. No, sin is rejecting whatever truth God has given us about Himself. And that's why Paul goes on to say that those who sin suppress the truth. See, you can't call something right that is actually wrong unless you suppress the truth, unless you ignore the truth, right? I mean, you have to ignore reality in order to do that. And in particular, you have to ignore the truth about who God is because God is the essence of right and wrong. Isn't that what happened in the garden? Remember the very first sin? What happened? Satan came to Adam and Eve in the form of a serpent and he lied to them about what? About who God really is. He lied to them and tried to convince them that God was holding out on them. Oh, God had something good he didn't want to share with them. God didn't really have their best interest at heart. He was hiding something good from them. And he convinced them. They, they believed him and they sinned by violating the one prohibition that he gave them in the garden. He gave them everything. It's all yours. Feel free. Take it all except for that one tree. And they violated that and they sinned. See, when you sin, you suppress the truth. If they had believed the truth about who God was, they would never have done that. Obedience, on the other hand, flows out of an attitude that says, you are glorious and I will conform my life to your nature, who you are, the truth of who you are based on the revelation that you've given to me. Obey God because when you do, you acknowledge and affirm with your life the excellence and perfection of his divine nature. What is our purpose statement here? It's got three parts. Honor God, support one another, reach the world. But the first part is this. Honor God. Honor God with your life. You honor God with your life. You draw attention to His greatness when you live in obedience to Him because you are conforming your life to His divine nature. So why should you obey God? Because sin suppresses the truth of God's glory. Second, obey God because sin denies the value of God's glory. Sin denies the value of God's glory. It stands to reason, doesn't it? If we suppress the truth of who God is, we will fail to recognize or appreciate His glory. Right? If we, if we turn a blind eye to who God is, we're not going to really appreciate how great He is. We're not going to see His glory. And when we don't recognize the glory of God, we don't value God the way we should. 
That's why Paul says in verse 21, for although they knew God, in other words, they had the revelation of God in creation, it was there for them to see if they wanted to see it. For although they knew God, they neither glorified God. They, they suppressed the truth. They ignored the truth. They neither glorified God, glorified Him as God, nor gave thanks to Him. Verse 23, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Verse 25, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And the lie is that he's not really that great after all. That's the lie. It was Friday, January 12, 2007, when Joshua Bell emerged from the metro and positioned himself against a wall beside a trash basket. By most measures, he was nondescript. A youngish white man in jeans, a long-sleeved t-shirt, and a Washington Nationals baseball cap. From a small case, he removed a violin. Placing the open case at his feet, he shrewdly threw in a few dollars of pocket change as seed money and began to play. For the next 45 minutes in the D.C. metro, he played Mozart and, and Schubert as a thousand people streamed by, most hardly taking notice of him. If they had paid attention, they might have recognized the young man for the world-renowned violinist that he is. They also might have noted the violin he played, a rare Stradivarius worth over $3 million. It was all part of a project arranged by the Washington Post, an experiment in context, perception, and priorities, as well as an unblinking assessment of public taste. Would people notice in an inconvenient time, would beauty transcend? Just three days earlier, this same man, Joshua Bell, sold out the Boston Symphony Hall with ordinary seats going for $100. In the subway in Washington, D.C., he garnered about $32 from 27 people who stopped long enough to give him a donation. Watch this video of Joshua Bell in the D.C. subway. Thank you. 
Most people just going about their day, rushing from here to there, totally unaware of the magnificence and the beauty that was right before them, with the exception of that one lady. You see, because they didn't know who he was, because they didn't appreciate his talent, they treated him as a common street musician, somebody not worth their time. And that's the sinner's attitude towards God. All right? There are other things more valuable, God, in this world than you. You're not worth our time. You're not worth our attention. Now, why is that a big deal, that attitude? Because the Bible makes a big deal out of the glory of God. If you read the Bible with that antenna up, with with that radar up, looking for the glory of God, you see it all throughout Scripture. I've put just a few of them in your notes just to give you a feel for this. But look, Psalm 57. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory, the magnificence of your nature, be over all the earth. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. To give God glory means that we don't give Him anything He doesn't have. It means we recognize and affirm and appreciate who He really, really is. Revelation chapter 14, this is a a vision by the Apostle John looking forward to the end times of what's going to happen. Then I saw an angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory, because the hour of His judgment has come. Worship Him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Again in Revelation, John is taken up into heaven and he is witnessing this worship service at the throne of God. And he said, whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things And by your will they were created and have their being. God's glory is everything. He alone is worthy to receive glory. And that's why idolatry in any form is forbidden. Because when you worship an idol, whether it's made in the image of a man or an animal or a bird or a reptile, you are ascribing to an object the glory that belongs to the immortal, invisible God alone. Right here in Alachua, not far from this church, is a temple. And in that temple is an idol. And that idol is glorified as if it were God. They've exchanged the glory of the immortal God for an image made to look like a human being. Now careful. Before we point our fingers, before we get high and mighty, let's think about the ways that we deny the glory of God by our own sin. Oh, I've never bowed down to an idol, we'd say. Yeah, don't be so quick. Paul said in his letter to the Colossians that greed is idolatry. You see, anything that we value higher than God, wealth, pleasure, power, achievement, entertainment, anything that we value higher than God becomes an idol in our life. Anything that we trust in more than we trust in God becomes an idol in our life. Anything that we are unwilling to let go of for God's sake becomes an idol in our life. We can make even our own wisdom an idol. 
God in his wisdom said, this is how I want you to live your life. I created you. I know how you work. I know how you're wired. Here's where life works best. And we say, no, God, we think it works best if we live this way. And when we do that, we call into question the perfect divine nature of God. Because what we're saying is either God isn't good, and so I can't trust Him to tell me what's right. I'm not going to trust God because He's not really good. Either we're saying that when we disobey Him, or we're saying, well, God, yeah, He's good, but, you know, He's not all that bright. And He's good-natured and all, and He means well, but He doesn't really know how life works. We devalue the glory of God when we sin. And what do we elevate in its place? Ourselves. We elevate our own wisdom and we become our own idol. So we need to understand that God's not just another player in the drama of life. God is the author of life. He's not just another part of this world. Not just another element of this world. God is beyond this world. Look back at those verses we just read about the glory of God. And I've underlined some parts of those verses. Because they point to, they reference the immortal nature of God. Meaning He has no beginning, no end. Not bound by space and time. And they talk about the role of God as the creator. That means the glory of God is infinite. It is of eternal value. And for this reason, Paul says, only the fool would value any part of this created world over God. Look at what he says, verse 21. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. So, if you're going to obey God, you need to understand that sin suppresses the truth of God's glory. You need to understand that sin denies the value of God's glory. And finally, you need to understand that sin perverts the expression of God's glory. Sin perverts the expression of God's glory. You see, God fashioned this world. He designed this world to reflect His perfect nature. That means that when we live according to God's design, we are... We are a part of expressing God's glory. We become tools that draw attention to the greatness of God when we live according to the way God designed us to live. Now, the side benefit of all of that is when we live according to God's design, life just works better. It just does. But that's not the point. That's not even the highest priority in our life. The highest priority is the fact that it brings glory to God. So it makes sense then if we suppress the truth of God's glory and if we deny the value of God's glory that we will end up perverting His design in this world. Because why would we value what God designed if we don't value God? Now I want you to listen to me because this is so important. It's no mistake that right after Paul talks about suppressing the truth of God in verses 18 through 20 and exchanging the glory of God in verses 21 through 23, that right after that he talks about sexual impurity in verse 24. This isn't Paul just being prudish. This isn't Paul just just giving in or responding to the cultural mores of his day. This is Paul telling us that if you're going to deny the truth of God's glory, you're going to deny the truth of God's design. Sexual impurity and homosexuality in particular strike at the very heart of God's design for this world. Let me explain. 
outside of our relationship with God. The intimacy of a committed sexual relationship between a man and a woman is our most important relationship in life. By design. God designed us to live in that kind of relationship. I read an article this week called Why Marriage Matters for Adults. Here's here's a part of what it says. Researchers are finding that marriage has a much greater impact on our lives than many have assumed. This is especially true in the area of adult health and well-being. Sociologist Linda Waite and researcher Maggie Gallagher explain. The evidence from four decades of research is surprisingly clear. A good marriage is both men's and women's best bet for living a long and healthy life. Men and women who are in their first marriages on average enjoy significantly higher levels of physical and mental health than those who are either single, divorced, or living together. The research on this is very strong. And then the article goes on to say that a man named Dr. Robert Coombs of UCLA received, uh, reviewed rather more than 130 empirical studies on how marriage impacts well-being. He found that these studies indicate, quote, an intimate link between marital status and personal well-being. Now, that shouldn't surprise us. If we understand that God designed us to live this way, it shouldn't surprise us that when we do, life is just better. But that's not all. God didn't just create this relationship for our pleasure and well-being. God has a purpose for this design. What is the first description of human beings in the Bible outside of the fact that we're made in God's image? What is the very first description of human beings? Look in your notes. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. That's God's design. And what are the very first words spoken just after God created them? Male and female. What's the very first thing he said to them? The very next verse. Look, God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number. That only happens as a result of sexual intimacy between a man and a woman. It's no wonder then that in verse 26, Paul calls homosexuality shameful. Why? Because it distorts God's design and it defies God's purpose for human intimacy. It flies in the face of God's very first command to human beings. And our most basic function to procreate. See, when you defy God, this is the most basic way you can pervert His design. Now, please, 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 do not hear me say something I am not saying. I am not saying that we hate homosexuals. I am not saying that homosexuals are outside of God's grace. I am not saying that that sin is different than other sin in the, in the fact that all sin separates us from God. But what I am saying is this, that this passage, I believe, shows us that when we ignore God, when we turn our back on God, when we suppress the truth of God, and we deny His design, this is the most fundamental way that we pervert His design for humanity. Did you know that a bill in California in the state senate right now will allow students to choose their gender when they go into a restroom, a locker room, or join a sports team? Male and female, God created them. No, our culture says. We don't care about your design for humanity. We are going to impose our own design. But listen, that's not the only way we distort God's design. 
And that's not the only way Paul shows us here. Look at the rest of this list in verse 29 and following. And understand that this is not a comprehensive list. This is a for, exa- for example. Everything on this list, everything represents a distortion of God's design for us and particularly in our relationships with one another. I mean, look at it. Greed, envy, murder, gossip, slander, arrogance. This is not how God designed us to live in relationship with one another. And how do we know that? Just look at our world. Look at the mess that it is. Look at the mess that we see in homes. Look at the mess that we see in communities. Look at the mess we see between nations because we don't live by God's design. That's what sin always does. It takes the beautiful design of God and it twists it. And it makes it ugly. Much like what Uriel Landeros did to Picasso's painting entitled Woman in a Red Armchair earlier this year. The painting, which is worth several million dollars and is housed in a Houston museum, was defaced when Landeros spray-painted a stencil of a bullfighter killing a bull on it. He ruined it by changing the artist's design. And so do we. We deface God's design when, whenever we sin and we make what was beautiful ugly and even grotesque. Thankfully, Picasso's masterpiece was rushed to a uh, conservation lab on site at the museum and it was restored and it's been returned to its place in the museum. And you know the good news is that when Jesus returns one day, God will restore the beauty of his design for this world. That's why we talk about a world where there's no more pain, no more suffering, no more heartache, no more sin, no more tears. Because God will restore what he intended and what sin has ruined in this world. And you and I can be a part of that restoration and it begins when we put our faith in Jesus Christ because God designed us to have a relationship with him. That is the most basic, fundamental relationship in our life. That is the most basic fundamental need in our life to have a relationship with God. And that only comes when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. When we do that because He died on the cross, because He was raised from the dead, because He did all of that to pay the penalty for our sin. When we put our faith in Christ, when we accept Him as our Savior, we are restored in that relationship with God. And that begins right now and it lasts through all eternity. And if you want to know more about that, what it means to put your faith in Christ, what exactly does that entail? What do I have to do? What what, what has God done for me? What does the Bible say? If you have a question about that, if you sense God drawing you to, 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 to seek some answers to some questions in your heart and mind, I would be more than happy to talk to you about how you can have faith in Jesus Christ and enter into a relationship with God through Him. Here's how we can make that happen. There's a communication card in your bulletin you see there. And there's a place there for you to put your name and your phone number, and you can check that box that says, I want to talk to somebody about what it means to be a Christian. Drop it in the offering plate, put it in that little white box or the one like it in the back. I'll get it, I'll call you this week, we'll talk about it. Or listen, catch me after the service. I'm always here, I'm hanging around. You can come up and just say, hey, can we talk for just a minute? I'd, I'd like to talk to you about what you talked about this morning. Or you can, you can call me. Uh, contact info is in the bulletin. You can email me. And say, hey, listen, I want you to give me a call or I want to get together. Whatever it might be, however you need to talk to me, let me know so that I can talk to you about what God has done 
for you. Part of God's glorious divine nature, part of the perfection of who He is, is that He has provided a way for us to know Him. Even though we have rebelled against Him, even in our sin, God has made a way. If you want to know more about that, I would love to talk to you about that. In just a moment, we're going to stand. We're going to sing a song of invitation. This is your opportunity to kind of do business with God. Maybe something I said here this morning, maybe something that that God has said to you during the week is, is on your heart and mind. And you need, as we stand and sing, to just do a little business with God. And you need to talk to Him this morning for a few minutes. As we stand and sing, please take that opportunity. Listen, this is a time for you to respond. We also have some some folks that are going to middle school camp this week. Had a week of VBS and then we're going into a week of camp. And I'm going to ask as we stand and we sing in a few moments that if you're going to camp this week, that you just make your way down. And when we're done singing our song of invitation, I'm going to have just a time of prayer with, with you who are going to camp this morning. Would you do that? Let's stand together. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you that you are glorious, that you are perfect, that you are excellent, that you have chosen to reveal yourself to us, not only through nature, through your creation, but through your word as well. Father, may we conform our lives to who you are. Father, let us never in our arrogance ask you to conform who you are to who we are. And Father, I pray that we would walk out of here with this pressing need to bring you glory with our lives. Father, I also pray as we think through these issues, many of them very difficult issues, issues many of them very difficult, uh, um, pertinent issues in our culture today, Father, that we would, we would do so with grace. Father, there's one thing that everyone in this room has in common and that we all stand before you apart from your grace as sinners bound for hell. Lord, there's nothing good, your word says, in us apart from what you've done in us. There is none who seeks after God. There is no one who is righteous. And Father, may we never, ever look down our nose at anyone. May we never, ever, Lord, stand with an air of self-righteousness before anyone. But Father, may we all stand humbly before you, grateful for your grace, with a desire to share that grace with others. Father, I pray for anyone this morning who's never come to that place of putting their faith in Jesus Christ. They've never begun that part of the restoration by entering into a relationship with you. Lord, I pray that you draw them today through your Spirit to the Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.